Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest globally in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. The lean startup got people used to the idea of iterating rapidly on ideas. And in a way, we've just taken that to the next stage on teams. Matt Clifford is the co-founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First. EF helps create deep tech startups by attracting exceptional talent and having them go through a unique program to create teams, identify real problems, and fund the most promising ones. SOSV has funded several of their graduates, and likely more to come. Matt, I'm so happy to have you. I've been a big fan of EF. I love your model. I think it's fantastic. We've invested in a number of companies that came out of your program. And now I'd like to dive into how Alice and you started Entrepreneur First, how the idea came up, what you learned along the way, and then focus a bit more on the deep tech aspects of what you do. I'm so excited to be here. I really appreciate you making the time. So yes, we started Entrepreneur First back in 2011. The thesis was that if you want to build an ecosystem that genuinely produces world-leading companies and genuinely produces companies that can scale to be globally important, then the single most important ingredient for that is talent. You need to have extraordinary people, super ambitious, super talented, super capable. You know, the way we thought about what was missing in the UK at the time, but as we've gone on, it's increasingly clear that it's, it's missing in most of the world outside Silicon Valley, is that starting a company, at least then, just wasn't a normal thing to do. It was certainly not the most exciting thing to do. It was certainly not the career of choice for the most ambitious people. And that had a lot of consequences. It meant that you didn't get the sort of extremely dense network effects that you get in Silicon Valley, where all the people you might want to start a company with are people in your network and that you know, and if they're not, then they're one degree removed. Instead, you end up with a situation where even the minority of people that do decide they want to start companies, they don't know the right people to start with. You know, they're probably the smartest, most ambitious person that they know. And so Mm -hmm. we want to try and sort of shortcut the process of ecosystem building, which obviously has taken many, many decades in Silicon Valley, and do that by creating a new model of venture capital where rather than wait for companies to form and then invest in them, we would actually invest in individuals before they had a company, help them find the right co-founder for them, help them develop the right idea for them, and then take them through a company building process, the result of which was a venture-backable company. Now, When we said we were going to do this in 2011, I think people thought it was pretty crazy. Understandably, it had never been done before. It broke a lot of the conventional wisdom of VC. And actually, as a result, you know, we took probably three years to really iterate into the right model for us. But since then, we've been very fortunate that not only has the model worked, but we've been able to be involved in helping bring together the founding teams of some of the most exciting companies in Europe and now the world. So today, EF operates across six locations, London, Paris, Berlin, Singapore, Bangalore, and most recently Toronto, which we're opening this year. We tend, as you say, to focus on people that want to build companies where the tech itself is a big part of the differentiation, is a big part of the why now of the company, and is a big source of competitive advantage. So as a result of that, it means that we've ended up looking at a lot of things in the machine learning space. We started investing in machine learning back in 
2013 before it was as hot as it is now. And then more recently, really exploring some of the areas that machine learning is seeping into areas like biology, like hardware, as you've mentioned, energy, manufacturing, etc. kind of areas that traditionally we don't think of as being touched by software businesses. That's a fantastic journey. And actually, I'd like to go back to the origin of the journey, because in a way, you yourself went through kind of this founding experience on the thought process on the that wasn't something necessarily very natural in the environment you were in. So you studied at Cambridge and spent a year at MIT. Was that an influence in your way of thinking about entrepreneurship? And how did you yourself meet your, your co-founder? Yeah, it really was an influence. So Cambridge is, you know, by European standards, you know, like one of the really leading entrepreneurial universities. And you know, lots of great companies have come out of it. But I have to say, when I was there, which admittedly now was a little while ago, I, I matriculated and started there in 2004. I didn't meet a single person while I was there who started a company. And certainly the, you know, the dominant thing that people wanted to do when they graduated when I was there, this was just before the financial crisis, was go work in banking or go work in consulting or one of the professional services fields around it. So mm. MIT was a real culture shock in the positive sense in that for the first time I was surrounded by people who either assumed they would start a business or had already started a business or just saw it as a very normal and you know maybe the most celebrated and exciting thing to do. So as you said, I was there for a year and it really sowed the seeds that a, a different way of thinking about careers was possible. I then came back to London and I started my job, which I sort of was very much a conformist at the time. I did what everyone else was doing. I became a management consultant. I was working at McKinsey in London and I had a fantastic experience there. You know, I learned so much, met great people, including my co-founder, Alice, mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of made lifelong friends. But it was also really striking to me that, you know, one thing McKinsey and, and I'm sure lots of other organizations like it do really well is, you know, they're a magnet for smart, ambitious people who are generalists and are not sure yet what they want to do with their lives and their careers. And so, you know, one of the kind of interesting things to me was that McKinsey was full of people who said that they wanted to start a company one day, but there wasn't an obvious path or, you know, kind of a reliable or repeatable way for people to try that. And so a big part of the inspiration for Entrepreneur First was looking at, you know, the kind of amazing people that we were working with and saying, like, what would it look like if these people, you know, if there was an institution that could attract people of this caliber and, and sort of give them a nudge and a, and a helping hand towards building sort of venture scale, globally interesting companies. And that's really how we got started. What you're describing about MIT, that basically it was normal there in that environment to create companies that were seen as maybe the primary options. And you kind of got contaminated by that idea. And then you carried <laughs> that back with you to London. What's kind of amazing is that you didn't get back into the mold of where you came from. You know, that idea kept growing. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I firmly believe, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't believe is that there's nothing like that special about entrepreneurs and it didn't mean that in a negative sense. How could I? You know, my whole job is about backing entrepreneurs and working with them. What I mean is, like, I don't believe there is some sort of, like, genetic predisposition to being a founder. I think a lot of the things that we say we want to see in great founders are things that we want to see in great nearly anything. You know, kind of, they're actually, a lot of them are the standard markers of extreme achievement. I think what does vary from place to place and time to time is the cultural prestige of entrepreneurship. So, you know, mm. Silicon Valley, yes, it attracts people who are disposed to start companies, but, you know, kind of almost more importantly, it creates a culture that totally valorizes and celebrates 
starting companies. And, you know, so for us, in a way, our mission and how we think about what we do is we're trying to create a little pocket of Silicon Valley culture and Silicon Valley norms in every city that we operate. We're trying to create a little, you know, kind of air bubble in, in which, you know, starting a company is the most exciting, most prestigious thing that you can do and where you're surrounded by other people who've already made that leap and, you know, for whom it is also normal. And I think that sort of cultural nudge is one of the most valuable things we can do in Europe and in the rest of the world to push people, particularly the most ambitious people, to start companies. Okay, so create in their mind the idea that there is a viable option and that it's not so special and so hard if you have the right guidance, the right mindset. Yeah, I mean, I certainly am not trying to say, and another thing I don't agree with, which is the opposite, is I'm not trying to say everyone should be a founder. I think starting a company is a really challenging often, frankly, unpleasant thing to do. And it's absolutely not for everyone. I often compare it to becoming a doctor. Like it's undoubtedly a great thing for society that some of our most intelligent people want to become doctors. But that doesn't mean that everyone should be a doctor. In the same way, I think it would be a good thing if more of our most talented and ambitious people across Europe became founders. Doesn't mean I think everyone should be a founder. So we want to provide an environment in which the cost Uh, rather the opportunity cost of giving it a go is vastly reduced but it's certainly not a claim that everyone can or should be a founder to dive more into like the process that you guys use to identify candidates put teams together and evaluate their projects which i think is probably the three most important parts of what you do i would agree i think it's all about talent identification talent evaluation and and actually putting them as you say in an environment in which they can identify and, and iterate through to an idea that genuinely can be huge. You decided to focus, I guess, at some point on what today is called deep tech. So highly technical companies with founders, with PhDs and masters. Neither you nor Alice have a technical background. So how did you feel that would actually be the right thing to focus on? Yeah, I'm a proud medieval historian by training. So it's about as far from deep tech as you can get. I think about it in a few ways. I think there's sort of a big macro piece around You know, like, how is the world changing? And it strikes me that, you know, I mean, if you take that like wonderful line that Mark Andreessen popularized over 10 years ago now, software is eating the world. I think that has just played out to be true in ways that were hard to imagine 10 years ago. But I would go further than that and say, you know, it's really not just software, but a lot of capabilities that software is enabled that are now eating the world and huge swathes of the economy that we, as I said before, you know, we wouldn't think of as being software actually increasingly look like software. So for us, I think, you know, why deep tech is, I think this is the area where people looking to maximize their impact in the world can do the most. I think it's worth probably just defining what do I mean by deep tech? I think it's one of those phrases that lots of people use now in lots of different ways. I think the simplest way to define it for us is a company is a deep tech company if it's like, why now? If it's reason to exist now rather than in the past, is that, you know, the company can build technology that others can't build. You know, I think every good company needs an answer to the why now question. You know, like, why hasn't this been done before? And, you know, clearly there are lots of good answers that are nothing to do with deep tech. You know, sometimes it's about a platform change that's enabled new kinds of ideas. Sometimes it's a regulatory change, sometimes it's a social change. But the kind that we're most interested in at Entrepreneur First is, you know, companies that can exist because the technology that they're using has only just become possible. And, 
you know, I think if you think through some of the really iconic companies of the last generation, a lot of them fit that mold. So, you know, kind of Google, you know, obviously in some ways was a platform change that enabled that. It was obviously enabled by the rise of the web. But really, the technology it was using had only just become possible. And that, you know, I think, you know, for me, Google is in that sense a deep tech company, as are companies like Tesla or SpaceX or DeepMind. You know, so I think there are lots of big, iconic companies that fit that mold. So, you know, partly I just think this kind of company is going to become more and more important. And that's one of the reasons we focus on it. But I think there's another one, which is, Deep tech is a really great fit with, with the model of talent investing that EF has pioneered and sort of scaled around the world. And that's because both for the entrepreneur and for the investor, it allows you to build conviction when you're too early to observe traction. I should probably unpack that a bit. Like What mm-hmm. I think is very challenging with this sort of talent investing model is to try and build a company like Instagram or Snap where effectively you're betting on a specific social behavior taking off. And ultimately, the company is validated entirely by whether or not that happens to happen. So, you know, if, you know, the Instagram model of a photo taking and sharing turns out to be a thing, then Instagram is big. If it doesn't, then it's not. Same for ephemeral messaging with Snap. It's very hard, purely on the basis of observing the team pre-product, to decide whether or not, you know, that particular company like whether Instagram will be the winner or or one of the other thousand companies trying to do something in the photo sharing space will be the winner. I think the nice thing about deep tech is that's not true. You know, so like because we invest so early, we're almost always working with companies that have no traction at the point where we decide to invest. And equally, the, the founders are almost always trying to decide whether to commit the next, you know, X years of their life to their idea before they actually have traction. And so what we really want to do is sort of, back companies and encourage our founders to build companies that are predictable winners. Predictable meaning that there is something you can infer at the very earliest stage, pre-traction, about their chance of succeeding. And, you know, I think one of those things that you can evaluate is technology. So, you know, we're really looking for companies where the skill of the founder will tell you a lot about their ability to build the best product and crucially, where the best product tells you something about the likelihood of winning. You know, I think in like a lot of lighter tech consumer markets, there isn't a necessarily super strong relationship at the beginning between product quality and outcome. I think what we're interested in is markets where you can have predictable winners because very, very few teams can actually build the technology to pull off the solution. And therefore, the quality of that solution and even earlier, the quality of the founders gives you certainly not certainty. You know, this venture capital, after all, there's a lot of risk, but it gives you a higher level of conviction very, very early on, purely on the caliber of the team or whether something might work. I feel I've said a lot there, so I'll pause there. But, you know, that's really our sort of investment thesis around deep tech. I agree that there's also a lot of different definitions of deep tech that like generate something like based on science. But I like the way you look at it as what's been made possible recently and I think what you described regarding the tech, the team, and the market, and also the difference between 
what you're doing and or like what an Instagram, a Snapchat would be, is something around market risk. Like there's team risk, technology yeah. risk, and market risk. And what basically you seem to describe here is that if you have strong technology and if you have people that seem to be capable based on their research or track record to pull it off, there will be a need in the market for the technology to solve whatever problem. Yeah. I would imagine many of those tend to be like B2B type of companies. Not exclusively, but you're right. It definitely skews that way. I mean, the way I think about this is that the markets where you can have these predictable winners typically have sort of three important characteristics. The first is that there's an unambiguous problem, you know, often one that seems to be solvable for the first time. Clearly, for example, autonomous vehicles is an interesting example. You know, it's pretty clear what a great solution would look like. No one's denying that if you could build a perfect autonomous vehicle, that there would be a market for that. You know, I would contrast that with something like Instagram, where it's not even clear at the start whether there's a problem. It's a bet on specific behavior. So, and that's the mm. first characteristic is just, is there an unambiguous problem? The second, which you've already hinted at, is, you know, there needs to be some sort of significant barrier to entry. You know, you want markets where there'll be a handful rather than like dozens or hundreds of entrants. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, in ideally what happens is talent and capital flow to the most promising teams. And as a result, the outcome is much less of a lottery than it might be in some other spaces. And then thirdly, there needs to be sort of somewhat objective standards by which to evaluate solutions. You know, so ideally, there is some sort of dimension that customers care about, again, some like unambiguously. So they want the fastest solution, the most accurate one, the most efficient one, whatever. And whatever product that can deliver the best performance on that dimension will win. And, you know, so like the nice thing about markets that have those three characteristics, unambiguous problem, significant barriers to entry, objective standards, is that it means that when you ask yourself, why will this team win? the quality of their backgrounds and their ability to build the solution provides a plausible answer to that question. You have a very, very interesting process during which for several weeks, you basically put them together, you encourage them to meet with each other until they find a suitable co-founder. How do you look at this? What for you is a fundable team? This is the core to the whole thing. I think you're absolutely right, is that you're evaluating teams, as I say, pre-traction, usually pre-product. And so, you, you know, we have had to develop a methodology for thinking about how to evaluate teams in those circumstances. The key idea is that the team building phase of EF is relatively short. It's about eight weeks long. But we believe that those eight weeks ought to give individuals long enough to test multiple teams. Now, it's not like dating where it's like, you know, kind of date lots of people and decide who you like best. What we say to people is find a team as quickly as possible and just get started and then evaluate whether or not that team is making you maximally productive. If it is, the chances are that it's a good team. If it's not, the chances are it's not a good team. And that sounds a little crude and binary, but I think it works really well as a heuristic. So we don't mind if a team lasts 24 hours, if that gives the members of that team information that allows them to you know iterate into the next team better you know we'd much rather that people got out of a bad team it's kind of a rapid prototyping for teams it's exactly that so you know i think in a way the lean startup methodology which really took off what sort of seven or eight years ago that got people used to the idea of iterating rapidly on ideas and in a way we've just taken that to the next stage on teams you know and i think socially the awkwardness there is Getting out of a team, normal in the real world, if you like, is very socially embarrassing. You know, saying to someone, I'm not sure I should work with you. But what we try to do at EF, if you go back to the idea of creating a little bubble where the norms are different, we say, you know, in the EF bubble, 
the barrier socially to getting into a team should be very, very low. And the barrier socially to getting out of a team should be very, very low. And as a result, you should feel willing and able to test multiple things before you say like, yes, this is the one. That's really about creating a particular set of social norms and entrepreneurship driven culture. Yeah, you could say it's kind of a a Silicon Valley import, but I think it's more than that because you actually clarified some of the friction points of team formation and business evaluation as well. To some extent, it reminds me of the Bauhaus school. It you know, brought together in Germany in the 1920s a bunch of architects, designers, artists, and they were all working together in this kind of community and very collaboratively, project-based. And I think they also kind of defined their own culture in a way, their own creative culture there. And I see some similarity to that in what you guys are doing with entrepreneurship. Yeah, I'm very inspired by all these examples from outside startups of communities of unusually productive people through history. So, you know, kind of as a side project from EF, I've actually been running a reading group in London where every fortnight a group of us come together and do reading on a particular group of people in, in history that, you know, kind of had an unusual level of either creativity or productivity you know, we've not yet got to the arts, but that's one of the fields we'll be looking at. But, you know, I often liken what we're trying to do at EF to elements of the Manhattan Project, elements of you know, Bell Labs and Xerox Park, and, you know, these organizations that have managed to gather, you know, an extraordinary concentration of talent and enable and amplify that talent to do amazing things. I would probably put Willow Garage also from Silicon Valley, the robotics outfit that gave birth to so many technologies and pieces of useful software, and also later on as a spin-off for robotic companies. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the sort of group that we're looking at. You describe a bit kind of the matchmaking process and the iterative aspect of it. Later on, when teams form, I'm really curious about how you look at the projects they present to you because even if they you know, form a team and feel comfortable with a project, you are trying to create viable companies and also ambitious, globally impactful companies. And Alison, you don't have technical background and you now have to evaluate very technical projects to invest in. So how do you go about it? What for you makes a viable idea and also a viable match between the idea and the team that presents it to you? Yeah, that's a really important question because I think it surfaces a big part of our investment thesis and thinking about investment. So we do occasionally use third parties to do technical due diligence on stuff that's just sort of way outside our comfort zone. So if we're investing in a space for the first time, we want to make sure that we understand at least what the dimensions of interest are. And, you know, we're fortunate that we have some very technical people in our advisory team among our venture partners and our entrepreneurs in residence. So, you know, they provide input on that. We've also worked closely with your colleagues at Hacks, particularly on hardware, where, you know, we're sort of, we're not hardware specialists by any means. So there is an element of that. But in a sense, what we try to design is a machine that does a lot of that for us. And by machine, I don't mean in the software sense, I mean a social machine. And what I mean by that is, if you think about what it's like to go through Entrepreneur First as an individual, you're coming in where your biggest resource, your sort of most important resource is your decision of who to partner with. You know, your opportunity cost is very high and you're almost like voting with your feet when you choose to team up with someone. It's a very big commitment. It's a huge commitment. Now, even if I was deeply technical by background, the range of things that EF invests in is so vast that no one individual, certainly not me, could possibly be expert across everything we do. You know, we've invested in everything from, you know, kind of, 
wet lab, you know, bio stuff through to, you know, kind of silicon photonics through to applied machine learning, like I've already said. So rather than think of this as like a huge technical due diligence challenge, we sort of rely to a great extent for the cohort to filter because the cohort themselves, the individuals, they have both the right incentives and the right skills and capabilities to figure out who's legitimate and what's possible and what's not. And so we actually partly just say a big part of that work is done for us by the fact that when someone decides to co-found with someone, they're themselves doing their due diligence on that person. They have no incentive to pull the wool over their own or our eyes about whether something's possible. So we actually want to take, and we've designed our investment model, to take a lot of technical risk. We're not afraid of technical risk. Obviously, we don't want to do stuff that's impossible. And yes, we do take care to, to try and avoid that. But a lot of that is almost like an emergent process of seeing the cohort form. Like someone who's totally off base and is, you know, effectively pitching the equivalent of a perpetual motion machine, they'll be found out pretty quickly by the cohort. So we don't worry so much about that. You know, our job is to actually, rather than have like downside thinking about how might it go wrong, you know, I see entrepreneur first job is to say, how might this go right? What's the biggest version of what this could be? And actually, I'm usually when it comes to deciding whether to invest, I'm much more worried about things with a capped upside than I am about, you know, things that could go wrong technically. That's a really, really interesting model. And in fact, it sounds like community-driven due diligence or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. With this idea that there's a strong alignment of incentives because they have huge skin in the game due to what you said about the opportunity cost of their time. And also in a way, kind of the fact that they don't have yet a lot of funding. They don't have a lot of money. So they know that if they commit to this, it's not going to be easy time-wise. It's not going to be easy money-wise either. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think it does work quite well. And I think the other thing I would say that bears it out is that it's extremely rare. I'm trying to think of any examples, but I'm struggling. It's extremely rare for EF companies to fail because of technical risk. You know, like, you know, maybe once or twice people try to do something and it just turned out to be impossible. But by and large, the challenges people face, even though we're indexing hard on on technical risk, are much more market-driven than technically driven. And market-driven would be kind of a timing problem or maybe something around execution as well. I think it's timing. I think it's execution. I mean, the other thing is just that for any given solution, the right place to play in the value chain is not obvious and non-trivial to work out. So, you know, you can have the right technology and the right hunch about how to create value. But if you don't find the right place to insert yourself, you don't find the right go to market, you can find that actually it's impossible to capture the value that you hope. So, you know, even though in theory, most of what we're investing in is like, if it works, then there should be a very clear value proposition. A lot of the time, you know, you're still, particularly because we're working with a lot of enterprise customers, a lot of it is like, can you be the right solution at the right time, in the right place, at the right price? And, you know, you're just layering on a lot of market risk when you ask mm. them questions. Yeah, like it gets like a smaller and smaller part of this Venn diagram, right? Right. I think you found a very elegant solution to the technical due diligence problem that scares off so many investors from deep tech investments. How much of your playbook can be used by other investors that exist at a later stage on that chain? If you buy my definition, that it's about companies whose why now is about technological change, things just becoming possible. What counts as deep tech in 2015 is very different from what counts as deep tech in 2020. 
And I vividly remember being at our demo day in 2015, almost exactly five years ago, where we had a lot of machine learning driven companies in the cohort. And at the time, I remember hearing an investor, you know, relatively well-known investor in London being like, wow, that just went right over my head. And he was not embarrassed to say that he just did not understand or care to understand machine learning. Today, mm-hmm. no one would say that because machine learning is so mainstream. If you don't invest in machine learning, you know, let's, let's say you don't invest in you know, software or, or whatever. So yeah, that's right. you know, it definitely felt deep tech at the time. And a lot of the seed investors were worrying about financing risk in the next rounds. Would people kind of fund that? And you know, we had two companies in that cohort that are worth today kind of well over 50 times what you know they were trying to raise money at then, in one case, over 100 times. That company, Attractable, pretty much every VC in London passed on it, you know, for a number of reasons. And but one for sure was that, you know, they were pitching that this new kind of machine learning, deep learning was going to be revolutionary and it could match human performance on a range of visual recognition tasks. And it sound, you know, like, sounds crazy now. It sounds so standard. It's almost commoditized. But at the time, mm. that was pretty hardcore. I think once people see that companies like that, you know, are able to raise multiple rounds of financing, when people see the exits, which have, you know, already happened in machine learning, suddenly the capital's there. And so, you know, my, my belief and hope is that we're going to see that effect on things that today are considered deep tech that were almost, you know, either sci-fi or science projects five years ago. So, you know, for sure we are seeing, as we've done more and more in the sort of bio meets computer science space, definitely investors have anxieties around that. You know, like, what will the scaling model be? How capital intensive will these businesses be? What do the exits look like? Who are the follow-on investors? All legitimate questions. But, you know, my guess is, as last time, I think the winners will become pretty clear pretty quickly and people will want to find ways to get in on the next generation of those. So, you know, in a way, I think, you know, I always say we should be extraordinarily grateful to the entrepreneurs that are willing to build these companies, you know, on the kind of difficult part of the S-curve because they enable Mm. some success down the line. What you describe as like deep tech being some kind of moving target is we also saw the same when we started with Hacks. That was 2012. Top of the line hardware was maybe Fitbit and some super expensive robots. But now, and actually when we started, we were not sure we'd be able to support investing in things like robotics and medtech and our industry 4.0 type of technologies. And now that's the vast majority of what we do. And the same thing happened also when we started the IndieBio program for, for biology. People were like, what, you want to do biology startup? Like you need millions of dollars to do anything in biology. And many of our companies have proved that that's not the case. And uh, of course, some of them do require large amounts of funding, but some got to market, you know, I have examples in the hardware of companies that got to market with less than a million dollars in funding, right. which is astonishing, <laughs> even for a software company. Investors just need to, and, you know, I include ourselves in this, but, you know, we all need to get comfortable with learning a new capital value chain for these companies. And it will not be exactly the same shape as a, you know, enterprise SaaS or, you know, SME SaaS capital chain. And actually those companies, they end up typically having a very expensive part of their journey too, where they just need to pour millions or tens of millions into distribution. And, you know, I think it's always just saying, you know, we all need to get comfortable with what capital will these companies need when and what's that imply around valuations and timing and, you know, where the risk is. But, you know, I think as long as people are creating enormous amounts of value and, you know, what I see is that 
you know, biology, hardware, chemistry, energy, these are all ways to create enormous amounts of value. You know, these are industries and or methodologies of attacking industries that are responsible for trillions of dollars of value. So as long as the value creation is there, we will between us figure out, you know, financing strategies. And to begin with, all financing strategies seem weird and anomalous until they become, you know, market standard. And, you know, we should remember that the software market standards around, you know, first you raise a seed and then an A and then a B and, you know, what the rough prices of those are, they're relatively new as well. I mean, no one knew what the playbook or the capital playbook mm-hmm. for investing in software companies was 30 years ago, really. So, you know, I think we just all need to get comfortable that there's always a learning period where we figure out what the capital intensity and the timing of these things are. And as long as we can do that, then, you know, there's no reason why we can't you know, kind of enable entrepreneurs to build hugely valuable companies in the space. You know, I like the way you put it, like uh, talking about this uh, new capital value chains related to the milestones specific to each category of, of company or sector. Yeah, I mean, it's really nice that, you know, in SaaS or whatever, we can say, oh, you know, the company's doing roughly a million ARR run rate, time for a series A. And, you know, clearly that doesn't apply empirical computation companies or whatever. But I think that that's fine. It just means that we all have to do the work to figure out what the nature of the risk is and, you know, what the timing to revenue is. I think that really kind of sums up the work there is left to do by many of the investors who want to get in those spaces but are not yet familiar with it, like about learning about those milestones, those value chains and the requirements. So you started in London, you're now in six cities. How did you pick your locations and what differences did you observe? We're in the business of talent aggregation. That's what we do. And so we pick cities that do a lot of that work for us. We tried to pick cities that aggregate talent either nationally, regionally, or globally. And I think if you look at the six cities we're in, they do that job incredibly well, either because they're an existing startup ecosystem or because they're an existing university ecosystem that's already attracting talent. So that's how we pick, you know, how it changes. I suppose the good news is that the actual core model doesn't have to change very much. We've had to do relatively little localization around how we find and support talent. What the most ambitious people in each geography kind of want to do with their lives by default does change. So our channels change, but broadly we keep it the same. I mean, I think the thing that is wildly different from location to location is the seed capital market. And, you know, I think what we found is that we are having to adapt to, you know, kind of high and low capital environments in terms of kind of how we help the companies raise their seed round. But, you know, in general, I think increasingly venture is a global asset class. And, you know, so I think we're actually already seeing some convergence in that around the world. That's really interesting. And actually, that reminds me of my first trip to India when I went around for three weeks meeting a lot of entrepreneurs about seven years ago. And at the time, there were very few angel investors. There was no unicorn in India. And I remember meeting with a bunch of guys from Ola Cabs and Flipkart, mm-hmm. some of the founders of those. And the message was that entrepreneur was at the bottom of the social chain, (laughs) right? basically. And the guys were like, it's impossible to get married if you're an entrepreneur. You're not even a businessman because a businessman might be doing something glorious, but at least makes money. (laughs) An entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur, doesn't make money yet, might not for several years. And it's a highly, highly risky value proposition. So it looks like that culture changed dramatically. and, And there's definitely pockets where that's evolved like a lot. Agreed. I feel that something that's not really talked about when we talk about failure and ambition is what's the real cost of failure? In the US, if you're somewhat technical or like talented in some business aspect, the job market is very, very fluid. 
from the moment you stop being a founder or a staff at a startup, you can find another job very, very quickly. In some other places, and I remember conversations in Japan about that, that can wreck not only your immediate prospects, but also your future prospects of your life. You might end up even in debt in some places. So do you see that this cost of failure has evolved? And how do you see like this idea of ambition playing out in Europe and Asia? 100% agree with you on the cost of failure point. And I think it's something that if you're in Silicon Valley, it can be hard to appreciate by the rest of the world that the cost of failure is very real, as you say, socially, in terms of employment, etc. And I think this is one of the key things that Entrepreneur First provides and is one of the reasons we've been successful is that we really reduce the cost of failure, not just because we pay a stipend during that initial period, but because the connections that people form within the cohort end up being you know, a key source of you know, kind of job opportunities for people that don't make it. So actually, it's very, very common for people that do EF to go and work for an EF company. And so I think kind of by being able to reduce the cost, that has a huge impact. On ambition, I think the point I would make here, which I think is the nuance that's often lost in Europe, and obviously, to be clear, like we clearly now at the stage in Europe where there are super ambitious companies, like I said, in Asia, it's obviously not about all entrepreneurs. But I see in some angel investors, and then it kind of has an impact on entrepreneurs, a belief that you can increase your chances of success by reducing your ambition. So like, don't try and do something so hard. Try and do something a little bit easier, and actually you'll have a better chance of succeeding. I actually think that's 180 degrees the wrong way of thinking about it. And the reason is that if you think about the two crucial ingredients that you need in order to succeed, talent, you need great people to come and work for you, and capital, you need to attract great investors to you know, give you the financing you need. Both those two ingredients are way more attracted to ambition than they are to perceived likelihood of success. And so you cannot, in my view, actually increase your odds of success by trying to do something easier. In fact, you make life harder for yourself because you cut off access to the best talent and you cut off access to the best capital. So the message really that I've been trying to send to our entrepreneurs and broadly to entrepreneurs in the world outside Silicon Valley is don't be afraid of ambition. It actually helps you. It doesn't hinder you. It makes your success more likely, not less. What you're saying is that it's easier to do something hard, like going to slay dragons is more exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What for you makes a mismatch in a team, even if they seem to get along and seem happy together? I think the main mistake people make there is to evaluate the quality of the friendship rather than the productivity of the working relationship. So you can be really, really good friends with someone and want to go to the bar with them, want to have fun with them. But if you're not making each other mutually more productive, it's not a good team. And I think that's the biggest mistake people make. Hang on to a team because they want to be friends with the co-founder, even though they're not making each other more productive. That's a really good point. Actually, at SOSV across the board, we also try to evaluate another aspect of teams is to make sure they cover not only some kind of an entrepreneurial vision, but also technical skills and two other skill sets that tend to be more disregarded or quite weak in very technical teams. One is organizational skills and the other is more like communication skills. Because if you end up with visionary technical people, they might just keep prototyping, prototyping, and they never ship because they're not organized and they never sell because they don't know how to. Like, do you also like pay attention to those aspects? So do you have ways to, to mitigate those risks? This all filters through productivity, in my view. I think like it's very, very hard for a team to get a huge amount done if it doesn't have some of those core skills in the founding team. 
So, you know, I think sometimes you can, as an investor, tie yourself in knots trying to evaluate lots and lots and lots of different dimensions. And those dimensions are all important. But I, we've just found sort of like the ability to get stuff done is such a good proxy for a large number of underlying dimensions that rather than try and build like lots of different sort of evaluative mechanisms, we just shortcut to how much is this team getting done and how quickly. To evaluate if they're doing productive work versus just busy work, because as entrepreneurs, it's easy to you know, keep busy forever doing all sorts of things. That's how you do like, you know, checkpoints with them and things like that. In a way, it's quite straightforward is that you get them to set their own goals you help them do that and you use your knowledge and beliefs about what good looks like to do that. And then you see whether they can achieve them. It would be very easy to create busy work, but it wouldn't be in line with an ambitious goal. So it's quite easy mm. to detect in that respect. So what's next for EF? We're excited about continuing to take our mission global. Our mission is to transform the lives of the world's most impactful people through entrepreneurship. We're doing that now in six cities. And, you know, I think you'll see that grow, but we don't think of that purely in terms of like the number of cities. We don't want to scale for the sake of it. The way we see it is how do we make sure that we not only touch as many people as we can in terms of bringing entrepreneurship into that sort of place where it's totally normal, but also how do we make sure we're as helpful as possible along the way? So I think for us, it's, you know, we want to be as accessible to all the world's most ambitious people. We want to be the most attractive choice for them. And we want to make sure we're as effective as possible in helping them. So lots more to come. Wonderful. Well, Matt, thanks so much. It's really great to speak to you. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for listening. To know more about EF, check out their website, Twitter, and Matt's excellent weekly newsletter, Thoughts in Between. Subscribe now for future episodes. Follow us on Twitter at SOSV or visit our other podcast, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia cross-border internet. Bye.